there have been a lot of episodes of a lot of podcasts. And there have been a lot of episodes of podcasts that you may have enjoyed over the years. And you could listen to any podcast you wanted to listen to. But I'm glad you've taken the time to listen to conversations about dot, dot, dot. This is part one of episode 50. The Ask Us Anything podcast episode. You're going to get the first part of this. You're also going to get an interview with Adam Lawson, who has a really cool Kickstarter project out called The Eighth. So you'll hear our initial answers to questions, and then you'll hear his interview, his and I's interview. Now, don't worry if you don't hear your portion or your question or your voicemail, because we're having part two next week. So we want you to be able to get involved with that as well. If you haven't had a chance to send in a question yet, please send in a question. Leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm or go to conversations about dot, 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 Facebook group and leave a question there. And we'll definitely make sure to answer it in part two. So anyway, thank you so much for rocking with us on this episode. Thank you for Jingles Rasco and Spider Rasco for encouraging me to do this. Thank you for Crafting Cosplayer coming in and getting involved. And for all the people that I've interviewed, I appreciate you. And thank you so much for being willing to let me talk with you about your lives and different things like that on this journey that we're all on. And above all else, guys, uh, as always, be blessed to be a blessing to somebody. Welcome to episode 50 of Conversations About Dot Dot Dot. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to episode 50 of conversations about dot, dot, dot. Woo! My name is Will, I am the host of the show, but I am not alone, I come with. Uh, us, the Roscoe brothers, it is I, Jingles Roscoe. Whoa, it's me, Smider Roscoe. Good morning, evening, or afternoon, depending on wherever you are at. We are in mid-celebration right now, here in downtown our house, celebrating <laughs> the 50th episode of Conversations about dot, dot, dot. Halfway there. Whoa. We're halfway yes. there. Halfway there. I, Whoa, live on a prayer. That's right. What? There's a milestone right now. We're right. halfway there to a milestone. It's not a mile. This is a milestone. It's not a mile. It's just 50 episodes. It's a milestone. It's not a mile. Don't you know what a milestone is? It's a stone <laughs> that's a mile long. It's a, no, it's a stone that measures. This is you've gone a mile, and then you reach the next one. This stone. Tells Why would you you've I need a stone mile. to tell me that? Because I can just look at a map, and it'll tell me it's a mile. Can you read maps, brother? Sure, I can. There's that little bar that's a little bitty tiny thing, like about like about the size of a, a small pencil. Uh-huh. That's a mile. So all I have to do is just walk outside my house, and that's a mile. Oh. Yeah, you you walk a pencil distance. And yeah, that's a mile. and that's a mile. Okay, yeah. The map, the dude. The map says very clearly, to scale, not to scale. That's right. <laughs> the map says oh. very clearly, um, this is a key, and I tried opening the door with it, but it didn't work. I tried folding the map, and I tried sticking it into the keyhole. But nothing happened. And so I was now like, I'm upset. I was like, I guess not. I guess it's not a key. <laughs> but the key oh, to wow. our success is going to be what Will's plan is today. The key to our success yes, has yes. been Will, Big Will Holland. Thank has you it? for thank you for having us on so many episodes. We haven't been on every episode. No, we've been on almost exactly half of the episodes. Have we? Yep, we've missed yes. a couple of episodes, but otherwise yes. we've been pretty uh, consistent. Wow. 
Yes. I feel, I feel like I've... That's definitely been a part of this. I don't know about that now. I just, I feel honored. I feel kind of odd about that. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, uh, odd in a good way? Like, it feels weird to know that without really trying anything, I've made up half of somebody else's content. <laughs> hmm. I mean, yeah. Interesting. It feels weird. <laughs> That's fair. Well, yeah. I'm glad and you've it's like, all been along for the ride. I really yeah. am. I, I appreciate you guys greatly and everything. And uh, Crafts and Cosplayer wanted to be here, but unfortunately she's out and about and not able to get connected in properly. But she did leave us a couple of voicemails. Yes. So that's going to be awesome and cool to get to. So, fellas, we got questions. So we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna do a little news moment, just a, just a small one. Okay. Uh, and then we're gonna get into um, into the questions. So for news moment, I wanted to talk to you about this Twitter controversy, using my quote fingers, Twitter controversy involving the Sailor Moon Draw Challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that people started drawing Sailor Moon because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's a new Sailor Moon Sailor Moon being done. And I believe there might be a live action telephone being done as well, uh, and everything like that. Of course, with the with the uh, with the virus, whose name we should not speak of, uh, it has slowed down production, of course, of everything. But that you know, so in honor of the announcement, people started, you know, they posted up a picture of Serena from Sailor Moon, and they were like, "Draw this," basically. And so people have taken it and drawn it different ways. Some people have drawn it, you know, as scared Sailor Moon. Some people have drawn it just as their own version of the picture. Others have drawn have race bended her and different things like that. And one particular picture came out and it was uh, based off of one of the live action movies that was done in Japan where uh, she was she was blonde haired, blue eyes, but she looked a lot more Asian. So then somebody came and posted that, oh yeah, great, finally a true representation of what Sailor Moon should look like, considering we've just been whitewashing her this whole time and people kind of flipped uh, out all this person and things like that because it's like okay and i'm going to compare it to another thing that people have flipped out on a couple of years a few years ago uh iron fist when iron fist came out twitter lost its mind because they couldn't understand why danny Rand was cast as a white guy mm-hmm. and i'm like but danny Rand's always been white like there wasn't an asian danny Rand. And then like, he got replaced with a white kid later. Like, he was always white. But people complained saying he didn't be Asian. Matter of fact, one of my bosses at work actually said something to me about it. Well, should they have classed an Asian guy since he's Asian? I'm like, have you ever read a comic book? I remember that. He's like, what do you mean? You telling us about that. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just like, you know, that happened. And I'm sitting there going, like, the internet is full of crazy people, but that doesn't mean you have to listen to them for fact stuff. You might want to fact check stuff before you start talking about stuff on the internet. Um, Sailor Moon was created well over 20 years ago uh, by a lady in Japan and she intentionally made, you know, now of course these Sailor Scouts are all actually aliens from different planets you know, like Mercury is from the Mercury Kingdom Sailor Moon is from the Moon Kingdom different kingdoms, each Sailor Scout had different kingdoms that they represented uh, but Twitter and its, and, its, and its ability to spark controversy out of anywhere was just like whitewashing this character who's been around for over 20 years. I'm waiting on somebody to say Goku shouldn't be white at this point. Like, 
you know, I'm just waiting on somebody to come and say something just really dumb about something that's pre-existed for a long period of time. You know, mm -hmm. and and I just don't get it. I don't understand why it's like, you know, we have things that we have that are in the past and it's almost like people, instead of taking them and saying, okay, I'm really inspired by this. It's like, it's almost like, no, these things shouldn't be this way. These things that have existed long before some of us we were born should exist this way. They should be different. They should reflect now. And it's like, but this was made over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I can understand if you even say, if you came to the challenge and said, okay, I'm gonna draw her African-American instead, you know, that's okay. I'm gonna draw her Asian. I'm right. gonna draw her to be Indian. You know, it, it, it's different thing because each artist is gonna bring their own interpretation to it. And I get it. But when you come in and try to make a taste that, oh, they're being whitewashed. Mm -hmm. It's like, not in that case, not in that case. Like she, I mean, she's always been blonde haired, blue eyed, look like a white girl. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah, she, you know, her name is very Japanese. I get that. But in a lot of manga and a lot of anime, you know, your characters look very Western. It's just the way that she's been drawn for a long time. Yeah. So, so I just don't understand. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I, I, I like the idea of focusing in on this. Will. Um, like, uh, but I'll be honest with you, I'm a bit strange in this way in that, um, sometimes controversies and, you know, upsets and Twitter be being angry about whatever it is this week, um, not, I don't really find myself either getting exasperated or tickled. I find myself more sort of entertained by whatever outrage is going on that's my first reaction to a lot of stuff okay um but then i suddenly always find myself slipping into another secondary line of thought i make this joke with jingles and josh all the time where i'll just be sitting there we'll hear about some controversy and um i'll be sitting there quiet for a minute and then i'll tell them oh no bro i'm thinking about it oh no oh no and what that what that basically just means is that not only am i thinking about what people are saying and how people are reacting to this one thing but then i'm starting to think about the history of the character the history of the medium the history of representation within the medium the history of people's reaction to different sorts of representation and uh if you'll allow me i'll just sort of ramble and uh go on my own chain of thought because okay, go ahead. I'm thinking like well the thing about Usagi is that she's obviously supposed to be a young Japanese schoolgirl at the time of the era and I'm thinking like her physical appearance it's not actually anything unusual that we've seen in uh Japanese media for such a long time and plus there was that whole stage where everybody had different weird color hair and I remember a teacher of mine a long time ago telling me that uh, the reason why we end up seeing some trends like that is because at the time Japan in like at the time Japan then and Japan now in different degrees still struggles some with some elements of xenophobia so they end up having to reimagine it in different ways that they can. Different people 
have different weird colored hair that's now natural and they're all different aliens and that's sort of fine for them in that moment and now we've got um and now we've got well we've had shows like uh i think iki Towson, where there was this really cool guy that knew capoeira and he was and i should bit a representation with that but to say that we and i and i i'm hooked up on stuck on the term we when the person says we've been whitewashing her this whole time and i'm thinking mm-hmm. who's we the fans because the fans haven't been doing anything about that and if you're talking about the animation studio being the representative we as in we who have been actually creating the anime and been putting the manga on out there mm-hmm. there haven't been any actual attempts to that what what they're putting out is the definitive version of Sailor Moon at that time. And then mm-hmm. that gets me thinking, well, if that's the definitive version, then there is no step up or step down on the spectrum of whether or not she's even being whitewashed. It's just, this is Sailor Moon right now. And she's, as far as I can tell, she's been consistent over the decades. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when Sailor Moon R came out, and I was really interested in that. And I was all like, I like it because she looks like how Sailor Moon has always looked like. And but there's just obviously a modern budget attached to it, and it's very pretty. And it's and it's sort of interesting to have this. I don't know, this sort of perspective on this very Japanese character. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have it that they should only be viewed in this one specific way. Um, that being said, I feel like if you were to hard lock her into a Earth race, then... I don't know if that's actually a benefit or a detriment to the character herself. Because with Sailor Moon's appearance being the way that it always has been, she's sort of racially ambiguous. Um, And to say that she's strictly Japanese because her name is Japanese is to sort of do a disservice to the lore that's already been established. I mean, mean, Will, you already brought up that she's technically an alien. And so is Goku from Dragon Ball Z. And it's like I'm scratching my head thinking if we were to funnel her through some sort of live action lens, then would we, like, would, would it be good or bad to have her attached to some sort of Earth race that we already know and that we're already familiar with? Or is it better to still maintain that sort of racial androgyny? Or sorry, that not androgyny, that racial ambiguity. Okay. Yeah, and I just think it, I just think it's fascinating stuff to just sort of sit and ponder on because I also find myself thinking, um, what would I do uh, as a as a creative 
like imagine that you're part if you imagine that you're the head of the animation company that's handling a new Sailor Moon product. First of all, good for you. Sailor Moon's a pretty high profile legacy character. And now mm-hmm. you can reintroduce her to a whole new generation. And now you have the creative choice to really change and reinvent Sailor Moon or to maintain the established legacy of Sailor Moon. And I think that's a hard line to dance. I mean, long and short, at the end of the day, nobody's going to be happy. I mean, if we ended up making Sailor Moon look extremely Japanese, then, you know, somebody else is going to have an outcry. Or if we go on the opposite end of the spectrum, then everybody else is going to be upset about that as well. Uh, Obviously, nobody's, you know, you can't please everybody. But I just think it's sort of interesting to consider that creative decision from your perspective. What would I do in this case? And I've really been having a hard time lately sort of connecting with either side of a controversy because I'm just so enamored by this idea of taking a step back and just watching the whole thing. Long and short, I'll be honest with you, Will, I kind of don't care. (laughs) And I know that that's kind of callous sounding, but I kind of don't care um, if she looks more or less white or Asian in this case, as long as the story is good. Mm -hmm. And as long, and because I made a point recently that, uh, I think the reason why I don't care for a lot of stuff is because it's not really meant to appeal to me. And I like Sailor Moon, and I liked watching it when I was younger, but I also know it's not exactly for me right now. That being said, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I still can't enjoy it if there's a good story attached to it. That's right. what I take. I, I know that was very long, and it kind of went everywhere. Um, but... You know, long and short, uh, I kind of don't care, and I'm kind of tickled by this sort of back and forth that people are going for on that. And I have no way to say it should be this or it should be this with any sort of absolute authority, mm-hmm. because I'm not part of that creative team. So I can't say yay or nay as to this is what Sailor Moon is, and to say that I do or really for most people who anybody that's not part of that creative team to chime in and say that they know better is really kind of a disservice to those that are actually trying to put out new Sailor Moon mm-hmm. Bro, what do you think? So, because I like looking up information about stuff and getting all my research done beforehand. Hey! High five! I've looked it up. So, the screenshot is from episode 36 of Sailor Moon S, which is the third season of the original series. Oh, nice! Yeah. Um, the episode is called A Bright Shooting Star, Saturn, and the Messiah. Um, and there's there's a lot of context down to why she's looking the way that she does oh, I in the screenshot. This started 
going, the redrawing thing started in with Korean Twitter, with huh. Koreans all the way back in July second of twenty nineteen. Wow! And it's oh, only wow. recently that. been gaining a lot of traction here in the West. Okay. Um, Break it down. So a me. lot of Korean artists have been redrawing uh, Sailor Moon. Whoa! And so um, they they're just all like, "This is a nice screenshot. I'm going to redraw it." Yeah. And then like, yeah. um, it's got really popular. A bunch of different Korean artists redrawing wow. the same screenshot, and it looks great. Um, and then recently is in May 2020. Yes, is when people over here. I like some of these other ones over here. Oh yeah, they're <laughs> starting to pick up the meme momentum. The momentum, the momentum, if you will, um, and uh, you know, people over here are starting to draw it. Um, let me see here. On May nineteenth, so it was about five days ago, on Twitter, mm-hmm. the artist Silver Jow posted two submissions in which Sailor Moon was drawn to have more apparent Eastern, uh, East Asian features compared to her appearance mm-hmm. in the original anime series, with one of the artworks also replacing her blonde hair with black. And then oh. it shows the pictures of, of huh. the two there. Um, the tweets were followed with comments in which many of the Twitter users opinioned that there, Here we go. that other artworks had been whitewashing the character. Not the show, other people's artworks in this redraw challenge have been, white, have been whitewashing her. See, I, feel like I need that context before. as well. Um, somebody, uh, got a bunch of tweets from Japanese people Wow, that are seeing this controversy. Yeah. And I'm going to read a couple of these please, tweets to you. Please. They this were, is interesting. Oh, they, they were apparently redrawn or, uh, put through Google Translate. So it's oh, not yeah. like a perfect translation, but here's one that says, I knew they do think that way, but actually seeing it still surprises me. We see her has only some creation who has some affinity to Japanese. Compared to that, what they do is stereotyping some race to teach others what's correct. Interesting. Which prejudices, which produces prejudices and racism. That makes this hell. Is that they think they are thinking equality to others. Huh. There's another one that says... Sailor Moon redraw thing was fun until anime looks like white. Kind of talk <laughs> coming out of again, which makes me so nausea. No, that's a good. That's a that's good point. the worst racism a few Westerners do, which is thinking that the diverse is a pudding stereotype character who has straight cut bobbed hair with slant eye into a creation. Fascinating. I say this is fascinating because it's fascinating to hear their perspective on this. One last one here that says, Sailor Moon and Asian thing. I kind of feel like I saw, quote, true racism from human rights advanced country. Interesting. Which cannot tolerate even that tiny deformation. Can't stop thinking that you guys just don't like Asian looks like white, do you? Interesting. Well... Interesting. And then here's a few. The Rascal Brothers. See, Rascal Brothers. Part of the reason why they're on the show is because they help me look a lot better. Because there are times <laughs> when I'll say stuff and set stuff up, 
with my limited understanding of it. So they're like, well, let's research this. Well, let's see what else is going on here. <laughs> and there we go. And so, um, so I appreciate that. Um, with that in yeah, mind, with that in, all in mind, yes. Um, Will get the research first. People, <laughs> no, people have been drawing Sailor Moon because they love Sailor Moon. That's right. And they're drawing right. her from her original design. That's right. One person yes. was all like, "I'm an artist that draws in more realism." Uh, Usagi this is, is Japanese, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna draw her with more Asian looks. This is my take on it. And then people were like, "Oh, thank goodness, somebody's actually drawing an Asian character now." Mm-hmm. And when everybody else has technically been drawing that same Asian character oh, with yeah. a different art style. Oh yeah. And right. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, it's just, and as the the Japanese people are saying, it's all like apparently, they like know better Asian Asian characters can't be Asian unless they have. This, the, yeah. the Asian looks like slanted eyes and straight hair yeah. that is in the bob cut, yeah. like yeah. a or or tied up in a like um, yeah geisha style bun. Oh uh, yeah, you know, and so yeah, yeah. You, it, it's one of those things where it's just all like these people are clearly wrong and yeah. they're getting mad about nothing. Yeah, but boy, are they being loud and stupid about yeah, it? They sure are. They sure are. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just, I just wanted to bring that to y'all's attention primarily because I know you guys are creatives as well. And so I thought that was something that would interest be, be interesting a conversation. I mean, of course, we could have talked about Ruby Rose quitting uh, Batwoman. But considering oh. I've not watched Batwoman, uh, I don't have a whole lot of opinions on it, really, because I've not watched the show yet. They've not released it on Netflix, mm-hmm. so I've not watched it. Because uh, I've heard it. a lot of things about it but i was like you know i'm kind of one of these weird people it's like i don't want to be told something's bad i want to watch it and see if it is to me because things that are maybe bad to you i may enjoy them like i've you know uh i've heard from like every source that iron fist is not a good show but i want to watch it and be like why is it not a good show so really quick uh doubling back uh very briefly Mm -hmm. um Will was saying as a couple of creatives, you know, we wanted to get our perspective on this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really fascinating because we actually have a character of Japanese heritage who does not traditionally look Japanese. Yeah. I mean, you could, I, I, I did put some of the more subtler features in it. Yeah. In her design. And what's interesting is that unless... You, and, I, and I think not a lot of people would piece it together mm-hmm. right away until they heard her last name. Yeah. And I think then they would be like, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. At least I hope so. <laughs> At least I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> then again, um, yeah. I was thinking also of other... Um, in, in Japanese media, other... Yeah half white half asian characters yeah that's are blonde hair yeah and have you know white style looking yeah. uh features yeah um there's like that one girl from uh could you be on balance white long blonde hair oh blue the, eyes. uh the president yeah oh uh, yeah she's like half german yeah she's half german yeah um but, but all the German came out. All the German came out. Um, the main, the main the character from Excel Saga is blonde-haired. Yeah. Um, and blue-eyed. Ken, Ken Masters is half Japanese. He is? He is half Japanese. Oh, um, wow. But that would explain his eyebrows. Yeah, and his eyebrows. <laughs> He's blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Which, in actuality, when oh, yeah. Caucasian people oh, yeah. and 
uh, Japanese people have children, those children always have very because Japanese it, look looks to them. Because they're dominant features. Because it's the dominant features. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's funny. Oh, yeah. That, like, um, but yeah. And you know what's interesting? You make a really good point. Because mm-hmm. those are Japanese-made characters. Yeah. Intended not to look traditionally Japanese. Yeah. And that's a really, really good point. Because on the flip side, Western interpretation, popular Western interpretation, makes it that if a character has Japanese, um, a Japanese heritage, they must look more Japanese. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, because of, just because of how much these two perspectives are tackling the same sort of character but they're having completely opposite takes of them yeah um i realized even the characters in naruto a lot of the characters in naruto are white looking and i mean like the main character is blonde haired blue eyed Mm -hmm. kid yeah. Admittedly, in Naruto, that doesn't take place on Earth. It yeah. takes place on like an alternate Earth. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I feel like but the argument about... could be made that they're technically not even in Japan. I, but you make a really good point, bro, because yeah. you're using characters from the real world in a real world context, right? That essentially would exist in our world, right? Because I compl- you're right. I completely forgot that Ken is half Japanese from USA. And yep. he, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Will. You're all fine. Run, 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 <laughs> it's not Street Fighter 2, but thank you. Thank you. Skullamania does need his uh, his shine. Yeah. Yes. I know it's EX, but still. Um, my favorite character from that series. But you make a you make a really solid point about using characters that should exist within our world mm-hmm. versus in, characters that exist within a fantasy setting. In high school, I had noticed that. The because that's when I was really getting into manga, mm-hmm. as well as still enjoying American comics. Yeah, um, I had noticed that in the Japanese books that have Japanese characters that are like this is a representation of the Japanese people. Their features almost looked more um, like they had rounder eyes mm-hmm. and stuff like that than the Japanese characters in American comics. That's my point from before. Mm-hmm. They're both the, the same take. Of like, yeah, Jubilee in the comics doesn't have like striking. Asian Let's use features. Psylocke instead. Psylocke. Yeah. Oh gosh, not the Psylocke thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but like Psylocke, Lady Deathstrike. Yeah, they're very like Asian defined features. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, I thought it was interesting that American comics were like. You know, this age, this character is Asian, has Asian features. And in Japanese comics, this character is very Japanese, has, you know, yeah, just not super strong Again, Asian features. and racially ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think, it, I thought, and you see, what's funny is that I, 
that's one of the things that takes me farther away from any sort of controversy or any sort of mm-hmm. uh, outcry or anything. It's the bigger context of what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I just always find that so much more fascinating than any argument that could have been going on. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, I didn't think about that stuff until we started taking a step back and being like, you know, it's interesting that the Japanese have this take on Japanese people and the West has this take on Japanese people and how they're almost opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's really cool. I just think that's really, uh, really fascinating to sort of just sit and think about. Um, Jingles, yeah. maybe what you should do is draw a picture of the Asian character from Atomic Blanc, Atomic Derby, and um, in that crop it in that same style, and just say, you know, hey, for those of you who <laughs> aren't fans of the Sailor Moon, draw Sailor Moon challenge, try drawing this character instead, and see what happens <laughs> if you get some. Will, I don't like starting fights. Yeah. Why, Will, why do you always get these ideas that you're all like, hey, we should throw more, fi- more fuel on the fire? I've, I've Look, learned, that's... Will, uh, I've learned over the years that when it comes to like controversies, I just don't participate and I just no, no. stick back and I just watch from yeah, the outside. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, our intention is to be Uwatu the Watcher. Yeah, but exactly. Will feels like we need to start interfering he with He feels things. like we need to be Reed Richards. And yeah, and like, just interfere with things. <laughs> interfere with things, change things, you know? <laughs> oh gosh, I can't make y'all Reed Richards, man. Reed Richards has messed up more stuff. <laughs> I want to... Here's a question yeah. for a different uh, thing because we want to move on to our questions. Yes. Um, who yes. do you think has messed up their universe, their respective universes more, Reed Richards or Barry Allen? Oh, oh gosh. That's oh, a, for a different time, though. Gosh. Just something to keep Yo. in mind. Oh, I like that. Um, that that's that's a very good one. That that, well, that let's could definitely get, be an episode. Well, let's, let's just take. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's go ahead and roll into a break. Come back and start answering some questions. How about that? Sounds so great after these me. messages, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back answering questions that you have provided. We'll see you in a minute, guys. All right, we're going to go ahead and, and get the first question out there. So we're going to go ahead and take this. So Shanice was an early uh, person who got interviewed on an episode of the Solo Shows. Yeah. And Shanice had a question about, Shanice is one of my friends from Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, she works at Space Cadets Collection Collection. Yeah. Awesome comic book store. Uh, I didn't and catch any we, And we not only uh, have great comic book love, she's the assistant manager there, by the way. I didn't know that what the time I was talking to her, but I think she got promoted. Congrats to To be the assistant manager there at the store. Uh, but she is also a huge wrestling fan. And so her question was, what are your thoughts on the crowdless WWE slash AEW wrestling shows? Um, I can start by saying I think they're hilarious. Um, But I understand that as a business, these people still need to perform. They still need to record and they still need to put out the product or else they're not going to get paid. So um, I feel like they're probably taking some pretty big losses from... Um, having recording in like arenas and stuff like that with nobody uh, available to watch, but they still have like you know the ratings on the TV and stuff like that that can help them 
still bring money in and and stuff like that so i think it's a i think it's funny but necessary um well probably not the recording in um arenas and stuff i feel like they could start taking more of like um how lucha underground would do stuff that like took place outside of arenas or have like smaller areas where they can record that would then be less expensive to rent out for wrestling matches and stuff like that. Um, okay. But that's that's my feeling on it. Okay. Uh, now, now, Spider, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I'm, I kind of echo what Jingles was saying. Um, you could shift it over to start giving it a much more story-focused what's the word I'm looking for a sort of a cinematic approach but that's uh, that's a little too broad I don't like how that sounds um, but you could essentially start shooting it like an actual television show um, have it that there are locker disputes have it that you show more of the wrestlers the personas lives um, outside of the ring start focusing on writing good quality stories you could do that uh, I don't see WWE doing that anytime soon. I think AEW would do that sooner before WWE. Um, and I see it, yeah, as sort of, as Jingles kind of already said, a necessary evil. Yeah. To, because to, just to still get people paid and to have revenue continue to keep pouring in. Yep. But. That being said, it is it is a necessary evil, but I also think it's hilarious. Yes. Wrestling well, in this empty arena filled with empty chairs. Yeah. I say drop the arena entirely and just go really, really wacky with setting up rings and all sorts of different spots. Like, uh, in the middle of the woods, right next to a shack where, I don't know, like, the fiend is trying to perform some ritual but then john cena has to stop him from finishing the ritual so they have to wrestle in this ring that's right outside this dirty old dingy ring that's right outside the shack or um braun Strowman is uh wrestling wrestling like oak trees out of the ground as part of his training <laughs> and then uh i don't know samoa joe tells him hey stop ripping trees out of the ground and then they have to wrestle in a wrestling ring that's very natural looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these trees will get these hands. <laughs> you know, this forest like is going to get deforested. <laughs> Turn, do your best to lean harder into the lunacy and the pageantry of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. I will speak to both of those. And uh, Smiter, it's interesting that you said um, to lean into that more. Because I know, for example, if you're able to check out the most recent Money in the Bank match. Uh, now, and there's a weird thing about that. WWE's photographers, their camera people have been primarily made to do live shows. Mm-hmm. Your camera setups are a lot different when you're doing live shows. Mm-hmm. than if you're doing a pre-recorded show because with pre-recorded stuff, you're having to get multiple angles of the same thing at the same time. Yep. Uh, 
And, and because here's the thing with it, 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 and I only come at this from more because I worked in television uh, when I was in college. I did a lot of our local television stuff, shot all our football games and basketball games and all that stuff. So to shoot a basketball game, for example, you're on a static camera. You're basically following the ball, and that's about it. You're not really doing a whole lot else. To instead go in and do a documentary on a particular player, there's a lot more movement that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more quicker motions with each camera because you're having to catch so many different things. Uh, and I know, for example, when they did the hell, they, they did, the, not hell in the cell, when they did the Money in the Bank match, uh, they re- pre-recorded that a month before it showed on the pay-per-view. And so you have this whole thing where all these women and all these guys are in different sections of the Titan Towers building that the WWE headquarters is in. And so they're all trying to go up this thing. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. I loved how they did it. But the thing is, I can't see them doing a whole show like that because if they had to record that a month out, how much are you having to record out a whole for if we're talking about 30 to 45 minutes just for one match imagine trying to do that with a whole three hour program mm-hmm. or a two hour program of smackdown three hours of raw two hours of smackdown uh that would i don't th- i think that would be tougher if you look at for example the uh the boneyard match that aj styles had with undertaker uh, it's the same thing. They pre-recorded that like two or three weeks out, you know. And the same thing with WrestleMania when they did the John Cena Fiend match. Again, they pre-recorded it several weeks out. And so there, I I think where they would try to put this together here, where they would be able to do it, you'd have to work so much harder. Your camera people. In order to do this on a regular basis, I think you have more camera people than you're allowed to have. And I know a lot of these shows are being done in their performance center. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, they're paying the bills. They're paying the basic bills and utilities and stuff like that. But they're not really renting other arenas because they own that building. Mm-hmm. So they're probably filming all their stuff in one location, with the exception, of course, of, like I said, the Titan Towers location when they did the Money in the Bank match. Uh on NXT, they did a match, and they did something similar. You know, you talked about having the ring out in the middle of nowhere. Triple H basically came out, I think when it was Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa feuding. And he was like, we're going to give you a place. Uh, we're going to we're gonna send you an address, uh, and you're going to go there. And you're going to fight. But when you get done fighting, that's it. It's over. Uh, it's done. This feud is over, or else you won't have jobs. That type of thing. And so they basically started from each person showing up at the warehouse and all this crazy stuff. It was really beautiful how that worked. But again, I don't know that you could do a whole entire show. But, okay, and when I say you could, because it's been done. Uh, AEW, I think, does it a lot better. But I don't think WWE can do a full pre-taped show with that much in, that much stuff in it. Because I don't think their camera people have figured out a way to do it speedily, but at the same time, cinematic. Like, they can have cinematic moments, but I don't think they can do the whole show in a cinematic fashion. Because mm. I just don't think they're trained for that. Now, could they learn it? Yes. Uh, 
I do believe Vince has come out and said that he's trying to push SummerSlam forward until they can have people in the building again. Because basically, he does not want to have SummerSlam in an empty arena. Mm-hmm. He wants to have SummerSlam in a place, which again, I don't think uh, that's going to be. He's going. I don't think he's going to get what he wants uh, if he pushes it to say July or August. Because I really feel like people are still going to be very skittish about wanting to go out in mass numbers of places, you know, for a wrestling event. You know, it's one thing for a whole bunch of people to be out on a beach, for example. It's another thing to be in a wrestling auditorium mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of people, you know. And I would say if they're going to have that event, man, they better have those masks on discount. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how many masks they sell if they say everybody that comes in here has to have a mask on. If you don't have one, we need you to go over there and buy one. <laughs> Before you come in here. And if you if you can't, we'll refund if you if you cannot do it and you don't want to do it, that's fine. We'll refund you your money, you can leave. But if you want to come in here for this event, you need to have a mask on. Mm-hmm. Cause they've already got masks for their different They've already got masks available on WWE.com for their different superstars. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything from Roman Reigns. What do we think about what was the, the, the... What are your oh, thoughts on the okay, crowd yeah, WWE right, yeah. and AEW episodes? Yeah. But I was saying it, it alludes to the fact that Vince was saying he wanted to push SummerSlam forward because he didn't want to have it in an empty arena. So... Well, Vince also wanted to, to the question. Vince also wanted to have WrestleMania with people in it, and was almost willing to fight legislation yes. to <laughs> yes. have people in it. So yeah. I don't want to listen to Vince no, right now. Not at all. Vince, Vince, Vince versus the state of Florida, state versus the U.S. of A. <laughs> Potentially versus Donald Trump, because I think if he had pushed it hard, I think Trump would have found a way to try to make it happen. Uh, I don't know that it would have worked. Vince and Trump but... are friends, though. Oh, they are. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. think Trump would have tried to do something to help him do it. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, so that's question number one. Thank you, Shanice. Yes. But that awesome question. Appreciate you and all you do uh, in helping not only feed our comic book knowledge, but more importantly, just being a cool person. So Brianna Shiles, uh, she was a writer that I got to uh, interview mm-hmm. as well. She had a question. Her question was, who do you think the funniest person in the world is? Who do I think is the funniest person in the world? That's yes. hard. I feel like there is a... I, I, don't, I don't feel like there is an emperor of comedy. I feel like there is a senate of comedy. Yeah. A congress of comedy. Sure, a no congress problem. of comedy. A parliament of comedy, if you will. A parliament of owls. <laughs> a yuck yuck. A yuck yuck. Um, <laughs> some of the people that like make me laugh really hard. Um, huh, that's hard to say. Um, because like I miss Don Rickles. I miss Don Rickles a lot. Yeah, he was just candidly funny. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a difference between people that are candidly funny and people that like really write really well mm-hmm. and then just like nail the execution. Yeah. And it's extra funny. Yeah. Like, so stand-up comedians versus, like, funny personalities. Or, like, comedy writers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's hard to say. Yeah. Um, um, I guess we should have said that throughout the the entirety of our lives, we've, we've looked for comedians and stuff. Yeah. Like. I don't know if I have a favorite comedian. No. 
Uh, but the ones that come to mind, I really like Brian Regan. Um, uh, I've been... Uh, back in the day, I really liked um, Dan Cook. Don't like him as much anymore. Um, I really... Uh, I really like Louis C.K. Louis C.K. makes me just fall over laughing. Um, those are some of the big ones. Uh, Chris D'Elia has proven that he can be funny just like on the spot. And I that I like that about him. A lot of these guys are really kind of mean and abrasive though. Mm-hmm. Um, except for Brian Regan. Brian Regan like comes off as legitimately like a nice person. Mm-hmm. Um so it's it's hard to say, but those are kind of like some of the top ones that I can think of right now. Um, even Bill Cosby was so funny. Uh, Eddie Murphy had some really good ones. Um, Robin Williams, some of his stand-ups were amazing. So um, I don't know who's the funniest person, but those are those are definitely the people voted into Congress right now. Yeah, sure. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to go ahead and share mine. Uh, so my list is a little bit extensive because I don't know that I can say who I think the funniest person is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a tough one to limit it to one person. Uh, so I will definitely say that uh, one of my one of my favorite, of course, is Bill Cosby. Uh, mainly because he was the only person in our house we could really listen to. Uh, you know, of course, back in the day, I, I kind of I had aunts who would have Richard Pryor albums. Mm-hmm. So they'd be listening to Richard Pryor albums while I was not with my mother or not with my other aunt. Uh-huh. So they didn't know that I heard a lot of Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so old Red Fox back before Sanford and Son. I didn't even realize he was a stand-up comedian before yep. he, Sanford and Son. I only knew him from Sanford and Son and, of course, uh, Harlem Nights. Uh, Eddie Murphy the same way. I think the first time that I saw uh, Delirious and or Raw, mm-hmm. it was just the weirdest moments in my life. I was just like, what? <laughs> What's happening here? Because I was laughing a lot of that stuff, but at the same time, that was stuff I didn't quite understand yet. Uh, you know, uh, who's the guy, the, the guy that he's just known as like Fluffy? Gabriel Iglesias. Gabriel Iglesias. Gabriel Iglesias makes me laugh sometimes just for the way he says things. Yeah. It's like the thing he's saying in and of itself isn't necessarily funny, but the fact that he goes into these different voices for it is interesting. Uh, I love Jeff Dunham because I remember growing up and watching Willie Tyler and Lester, who was a black, who was a black uh, puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Who had his own little puppet back in the 60s and 70s, and so he was kind of popular in that. So Jeff Dunham kind of reminds me of that era of comedy where it's more about puppetry and stuff like that. So I always have loved that. So yeah, that's kind of my list of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, I would put Jaleel White on that same list just because, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't know what Jaleel White was before the role article, but, you know, the fact he could bring that character to life in such a way that. I laughed almost every time he was on screen at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really, that really hit. And then you know, you really look at like the Big Show show that's on Netflix now. He's on there, and he uh, on there. he's funny on that show, you know. And so it's just interesting to kind of see how that works out for it. I'm glad he's able to do stuff beyond Urkel, 
because not many people, unfortunately, if you have a really famous character, especially as a child, sometimes it's very hard to get out of that out of that uh, scope yep. and not be seen as anything other than that character. So I'm glad he's able to get out of there. So that's my list of funniest people in the world. Yep. Sorry, my, I can't give you a person. <laughs> my <laughs> list tough. just continues. As as somebody that like studies comedy, loves comedy, and wants to do comedy for a career, um, there's too many people to for there to be a number one. <laughs> Britta? I'm thinking, and uh, I'm sorry, but I'm thinking about it. Sorry, Brett. Okay. No, Do like, we want? Let me, let me, let me be a little bit more explicit. I'm thinking about the gravity of the question. <laughs> Who's the funniest person in the world? Like, and is she just asking who we think yeah. is the funniest person in the world? Or who do you think is the funniest who person? We, yes. Who could we crown as the funniest, funniest person, person in the world? Because <laughs> that's all personal preference. That's, that's that is all, all that is. Yeah, if I were there to break it no, down on who, who... There is no numerical way for us to figure this out. On who could be the funniest person, because comedy is subjective. The, uh, the one of the most subjective things, like music. <sighs> Robin Williams. Yeah, Robin Williams. Okay, okay, I could, I, that, I could see that. And if I were to go more into it, I would ramble. So I don't think we want that right now. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Robin Williams is definitely he's he's probably speaker of the house at least. Mm-hmm. Him and Don Rickles. Yes. Dang, no, stop. We gotta go. We gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. Otherwise, otherwise, we're with... just gonna start naming funny people, which is what was happening there at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you said Don Rickles, I really thought of Betty White. So I mean, See? stop. Yeah, figure. Betty White. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Qu- next question. Uh, Adrian Asia Petty, who was one of the independent comic book creators I got to interview on the show, asked the question, says, business class says start with the end in mind. What is your ultimate goal with your books? So, of course, he's talking to me as the person who has the children's books out, and I know you guys are working on a concept mm-hmm. to put things together. Uh, so I'm going to say the ultimate end for my books really is to entertain and teach people. I mean, would I love to have a cartoon based on Pencil Ninja? Yes. Would I love to, you know, have a, you know, Netflix original show with Pencil Ninja running around doing things to teach kids lessons? Sure. Uh, I don't know if that's the ultimate goal, as much as I would like people, I like kids to learn something. I'd like kids to be able to uh, take lessons out of the pages of the books and the things that I'm doing, so that they can grow and be better people. Mm-hmm. That's a fire Oh, for for me, as far as pretty much every project I've ever worked on and released to the world, I just want to make people laugh and entertain people. That's my that's my number one goal with everything that I do, is to make people laugh. I don't want to work on dramas. I don't want to work on horror. I don't want to work on stories that make people sad or make them think too hard or anything like that. I want people to laugh when they read slash watch things that I put out. 
That's my main goal. Um, and then secondary is just try to be entertaining. That's that's my whole thing with everything that I make. The comic that I'm working on right now, I want to be entertaining, but I want there to be moments where people laugh. Um, the Atomic Derby is not a comedy. It is more action and more slice of life. But I like to believe that there's going to be moments where people can laugh um, all throughout. And that's me. Retta? I don't know if I'm in a position to teach anybody anything. But I do want to write about things that resonate with me. Um, companionship, friendship, understanding. And I want to put that out there to see how much it resonates with other people. And when it comes to making people think... I'm again this kind of comes back to i don't know if i'm equipped to give people answers on things so much as i'd like to just pose the question of something to somebody to just sit there and think about and see where you personally stand on it um i want people to i want my stories to soar i want people to feel inspired by what I'm putting out there I want somebody to read something that I've written and to be filled with a sense of adventure sense of longing for adventure um, and I want I guess I also want people to know that you're not alone in that moment of sitting there by yourself looking up at the stars wondering if there's more hmm I okay. want I want a lot but for um, and I see each one of our stories like Atomic Derby and a bunch of other projects that we have not brought up yet um, I see all of those uh, I'm playing Final Fantasy I right know now. he's playing Final Fantasy right now <laughs> no shut off the PS4 sorry go ahead <laughs> <laughs> just turn off the TV <laughs> <laughs> I could have just done that, I know, but yeah. <laughs> he had to make um, sure he had enough potions. Or he could have just muted and then handled that. <laughs> but anyway, um, well, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. Each story Impact. I feel like is going to have a different purpose of what I'm trying to talk to the audience about. Hmm. With Atomic Derby, each character in there is going to have their own personal story. And they're going to have their own personal trajectory and arcs to go through. So that we may entertain people. And Atomic Derby is going to have a lot of broad strokes about uh, friendship and coming together through hard times. And uh, the spirit of the desire to overcome a difficult challenge. At least that's what I hope is conveyed to the audience. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but that's where I sort of went in the conversation. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm going to get to the next question here. Got Ken Harris. Ken Harris is an awesome uh, independent author. Uh, he's worked on a couple of different things. Uh, one was uh, the story of Jet Set Jeff. And then there is uh, Night Terrors, which is very much a horror type concept. 
involving sleepwalker, a sleepwalker who may or may not be killing people. And uh, he's also doing a lot of stuff in cybersecurity, so he's going to be a future guest on the show. Uh, his question was, how, what, how or what motivates you to continue moving forward during this COVID-19 pandemic? You said the words. Um, he uh, said, uh, because it's in the question. <laughs> he, well, you said we should not speak, you should not we'll... speak its name, lest it get ah, power. <laughs> he has opened the, the box, and now the cat is out, <laughs> spreading <laughs> sadness, anger, and fear onto all mankind. But don't worry, the cat still has hope inside the box. The cat could be alive or dead. Schrodinger, you tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Is the cat alive or dead? I don't know, Doctor. You tell me. You put the cat in there. <laughs> what does motivate us? I'm gonna I'm gonna just softball pitch this over to Will. Okay. Uh my face motivates me a lot because I understand that at some point this too shall pass. Uh I have to hold on to a lot of promises that the Bible tells me you know, about how we are to persevere during hard times. We are to have strength and faith in God during times where we are in a situation like this where we're not sure. Uh, we're to trust God when we don't know the wise. Because just because we don't know the wise doesn't mean he's doesn't mean that he's not in control because he very much is. And to understand that above all else, uh, the hope in all of this is that when it's all said and done, we can look and see what he's done throughout the situation, even in the bad stuff. Because there's a lot of things have gone on. A lot of people would say, "Well, if if God were God, then why would He allow all this stuff to happen?" And that's just it. I mean, that there's and it's not, and I don't mean for it to sound harsh, but the reality is when situations like this occur, you know, a lot of times people people will blame God for stuff that goes bad, but they never credit God for anything that goes good. And so you look at a situation as a pandemic, you say, okay, well, there's this pandemic going on. Well, obviously, there's no God, because if there was a God, then this wouldn't be anything. But the reality is, is that because there are other forces at work besides God, there are things that are going on around us. And God is never going to say, you can't do this. You know, he's not going to come kick the door in on you and say you can't do this. Like somebody, I, I heard somebody on Facebook the other day, or I saw somebody on Facebook where I didn't hear him uh, say on Facebook, like, you people, you know, are, are just stupid because you're going out and you're, you know, they're opening up the stores and they're opening up the malls and stuff. You're just going to go out there and be, you know, and, and get infected and kill all of us and all this other stuff. It's just like the reality. God's not going to kick the door in and tell you you got to stay in your house. Okay, it's not who God is. Mm-hmm. Now, we have decisions to make, each of us, as to what we're going to do in this situation, how we're going to be wise, you know, as far as different things like that, how we're going to pray for people, how we're going to be there for people that we can, different things like that. So I really think my biggest thing, honestly, is my faith, because that's what helps push me through some dark days. Because there have been some days, it's been tough, to be honest. Uh, it's one thing to be in your home when you're off work it's another thing when you're working at home <laughs> yeah you know because you can't get away from it i mean you can go into another room you can shut the computer off but every time i walk into my living room now i'm reminded that at some point i gotta clock in 
mm-hmm. and go to work. Like it's different to just get up and go to work. You know, I'm gonna get up and go to work now, and I'll come home, and now I'm home, so I'm away from it all. But it's different when you're walking into a different room in your house and there's all your work stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are parameters and guidelines to go for that. But that said, I'm also praying for people who don't have jobs right now, who aren't able to work right now due to this. I'm praying for our teachers. I'm praying for our parents. I'm praying for. Uh, <laughs> I'm praying for those out there that are in the hospitals, those that are in the uh, nursing homes, those that are first responders, firemen, people like that. Praying for our children. You know, there are cases all over the place now where you've got you know, you know, in the news they've been talking about how kids have been out of boredom and being stuck in a house, you know, ODing on poisons and different things like that because, you know, if if there's a slip moment where a parent is doing something or working and their kids are there at the house and they're not able to supervise them because they're at work while they're at home, you know, that can kind of set up some really bad situations. So, you know, it's just, I think a lot of it too is what really got me through it is not thinking so much about myself, but thinking about other people. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, you know, and you know, I'm in my situation, but I know there are a lot of other people that are going through a lot worse situation than I am. So right. as I pray for them, as I believe God for them, that he'll help provide for them during this time, I'm not thinking about me so much. And so then when I do think about me, it's like, oh, well, God, here's where you bless me in this. Here's some things I need to work on during this time while I'm here. You know, and things like that. And so, you know, it's just it's just my faith primarily. It's been the thing that's really helped uh, push me through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's good. All right, cool. So we're done with the podcast. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no more podcasts ever. Um, I would say that I'm kind of thriving in this uh, pandemic. Um, speak not its name. Speak not the name of the pandemic. Um, I'm home. I'm working on my computer more than I have in a long time. Um, spending time with people online. Um, what keeps me going are like my friends online and my interactions with them and being able to just stay home and work on things. People are going crazy right now because they can't go anywhere well lately more and more stuff is being lifted so that more and more people can do things now but uh i have no real desires to go outside and do anything um and this was even before like they were like you got to stay home um when the orders were all like you got to stay home you can't go out uh if you have to do it as little as possible uh, try to avoid contact with people and all this other stuff. And I'm all like, okay, I can do that. No problem. <laughs> and uh, so I've been fine with everything that's been going down. I worry because I don't want to go outside and contract anything and give it to people that would, you know, be a big problem. But right. Uh, as far as my entertainment goes, I'm catching up on long shows that I've been wanting to online. I've been reading books that I've been wanting to. I'm we haven't played Pathfinder in so long, but now we got to do that. 
and we got to do that because we found access to playing it online um, together mm-hmm. for the podcast. And obviously, you guys caught the bug. You want to keep doing it. So, um, you know, we plan on doing it again pretty soon. Um, and I got to play Dungeons and Dragons with some of the other kids uh, in our server. That's been outstanding. And I we played again yesterday. And it was a lot of fun. And so I'm finding so many different ways to entertain myself. Shockingly, I haven't been playing very many video games lately. But that's just because I've been focusing on other things like drawing and getting stuff for D&D and doing a bunch of other things like that. I'm keeping myself busy here at home because I have a lot of stuff here at home that I can still use. So I've been great. What about you, little brother? You guys aren't going to like my answer. I already know your answer. And no, I don't like it. Tell him. Tell him what I'm going to say. Smiter wants to kill me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's a wholly separate issue. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I thought it was because no. of the No, that still lands. That still counts. Oh, okay. So you're not wrong, okay. but there is more to that. See, I thought so. Okay. <laughs> um... I was going to say that my answer is actually kind of boring. Mm. Um, I've been doing just fine. Uh, I've been able to still go to work. Still been able to earn money. And I've been able to still make time for myself and uh, play video games. I have been trying to listen to my therapist more about who has been encouraging me to continue to pick up my writing because they know that I have this long-standing sense of fulfillment with it. So the more I pour in, the more I pour into it, the better I typically end up feeling. Not even like passively better, but you know, more emotionally healthy, more emotionally available, and more stable. Than I usually do. So I've been pouring. I've been trying to pour into that more and more. But I'm also not trying to burn myself out on it either. It's a delicate. But that's what I'm working with. All right. All right. Well, cool. I'm glad to hear that you are able to keep your sanity in the midst of this. Because I know you know even when you're working, I mean, it can just be really weird and frustrating. I mean, for me, it's weird because. I get people that call me a lot of times and they want to tell me how much they understand that there's an issue going on that's slowing things down, but then they want to yell at me because there's an issue that's slowing things down. And it's like, I don't think you understand what the term but means when you say it in a sentence. Because you usually are excluding everything else prior to the statement. You know, it's like I was driving to work and everything was okay, but then my tire went flat. Okay, so you were on your way to work is irrelevant because you no longer, I mean, you're on your way to work and on time is irrelevant because your tire went flat, therefore you're not on time. (laughs) So, but anyway, that is a lot of questions so far. We've got a few more. Yep. So I want to come back and we're going to go take a break right now and we're going to come back and we're going to answer some more questions. Okay. So after these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey guys, you've hit the end of part one of the 50th episode. Don't worry, we'll be back with your more of your questions and voicemails next week because we just had so many and we wanted to make sure we got crafted cosplayer out of it all possible so that way we could get more questions on and things like that. So there you go. Anyway, stay tuned to the interview with Adam Lawson, the creator of the Ace. So I want to introduce you to an awesome comic book writer that's doing a project on Indiegogo uh, called The Eighth. So his name is Adam Lawson. Mr. Lawson, say hello to the people. Hello, hello. Nice, uh, nice to have you. Nice not to have a problem at all, sir. Not a problem at all. Uh, we were trying to get together earlier in the week, and we ended up getting some signals crossed, and we were able to get together now, and I'm, and I'm glad we were. And so I wanted to get a chance to really let him just talk a lot about his comic. Uh, as I was telling him before we started recording, you know, that uh, the art in the series is what really captivated me. And so he's going to basically tell me the story. I've read a little bit about it through Indiegogo and things like that. And so I just want to kind of hear from him and let him promote his work. So Mr. Lawson is always, when we do interviews, the first thing we want to do is start off with origin stories. Because whether you're a superhero or a regular person, everybody has one. And so I want to let you talk a little bit about sure. where you grew up, uh, different things that influenced you during your lifetime, cartoons that you may have loved growing up, comics that you may have enjoyed, different things like that, different geekitudes that you got into, and then kind of walk us to a little bit about where we are today. Sure. So... um for myself, you know, I grew up, I'm kind of a mutt, uh, Minnesota, Massachusetts, uh, North Carolina, uh, Utah, Michigan, um, as far as growing up days, um, before I ended up in Los Angeles working in television, uh, where I'm a television showrunner. Uh, I, my series I'm currently showrunning and writing is called Escape the Night. Um, plus, I've done a slew of others in the geek world um, <clears throat> with Tabletop, Sagas of Sundry, Spell Singers, and a whole pile of, of fun things for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but where it began for me, you know, it was the, really, there was the first thing that began was in the fourth grade, my next door neighbor, uh, who became a lifelong friend, um, was playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they introduced me to that by, a, a, a book called Dragons of the Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy, okay. the Dragonlance Chronicles. And I read that, I read that book, Will, and all of a sudden I, I you know, I was filled with so much imagination and joy and was captivated by this. And so I started reading that and playing Dungeons and Dragons with my neighbor. And the place where you could buy, where you could buy uh, Dungeons and Dragons books was a place called Dragon's Keep, and they also sold comic books. And uh, I remember, you know, coming into that shop and seeing Jim Lee's X Men sitting on the shelf. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The 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 best of the best. You know, um, I think that it was Jim Lee's art that for me as you mentioned, art got you in that transformed comics for me. Cause I didn't maybe think much of them before they weren't on my radar. And then when I saw his art and I saw what he did to a Cyclops and how he made them so muscular and strong and all the dynamic shapes and all the cool paneling and um, it, it, it brought, it came to life for me. Um, since my, then my art tastes have quite, you know, expanded quite a bit. That was the first um, for me. And, um, you know, there's still a deep place in my heart for Jim Lee and his work. Um, and so that was, that was the beginnings of, of what that was. 
And, and I think, you know, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I also started playing these World of Darkness games that were a little bit more complicated and um, um, more sinister. And I think those ended up sort of capturing my heart even and more. And the same thing happened in comics. I soon found myself into Vertigo and Image um, comics and, and sort of viewing a little bit away from the big two. But um, it was really, you know, Alan Moore's okay. thing. Um, when, I, when I read that, Will, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, but when I read that comic, it was the first time I really noticed the writer. Where, where before in the past, I enjoyed the writing, so to speak, but it was, but I didn't, it, I guess I wasn't paying attention to it near as much. But when I read that book, then the writing was so loud and so captivating and so interesting, it changed everything for me. And then after that time, I stopped following artists, you know, it started Lee and Lee Field and McFarlane. And then after that, uh, to following mm -hmm. the writers. And, and then it was after that that my comic books started to expand into uh, the broader world outside of the big two. And then it's and then it's it stayed there. Not not that I don't enjoy a lot of what happens there as well, but my maybe my mm -hmm. heart isn't there, um, like it is. Like I want to read Rumble and Extremity. Um, those are the one. You know, these are two image books that I really love. Or I want to pick up somebody's indie book on Indiegogo because I'm interested in this sort of zany, crazy character or story. Um, and so. Um, that was where it really, you know, began for me as far as like speaking of my origin story of of geekdom, and you know, in my early twenties when I got into Hollywood and I was um, making movies and television, and I was on my way up in the ranks, I'd kind of stepped away from a lot of that passion. You know, like when I was around twenty three, I kind of stepped away from it, and it wasn't until I turned thirty that I got um, hired to produce Tabletop with Will Wheaton, and which is a, you know. Mm -hmm. celebrity board gaming show and it brought all of this back to me uh, from my from my earlier days all these passions and then i was soon hired by dungeons and you know, hasbro um, to do spell slingers which is magic the gathering a game i also grew up playing and now my love of the geekdom um has you know become intertwined with my uh with my professional career in a way i can't uh, i can't separate right. and, I, and i'm happy with that and so so that that was kind of my my origin story, and I think I was always, you know, reading comic books and you know not only watching the sequences but imagining them play out and voicing the dialogue. Sometimes I would sit alone in my room and I would read things and I would speak mm -hmm. the words out loud, and sort of you know live them, if you will, um, which in a way you know is what made me a filmmaker, right? Um, because that was that's essentially what I get to do in that world. So, um, and then I, and I think what's happened over these last maybe five or six years is I've, I have this deep love of comic books and I've always wanted to return to it in a professional way, creating something and not just being a fan, though being a fan right. is a fabulous thing. And, and then I'm still both a creator and a fan. And so I started this a couple of years ago with my storyboard artist, Joran Evers. He lives in the Netherlands and he was an artist I found on ArtStation when I was starting a new TV show and I loved his work and I wanted to hopefully use it as a comic someday. Um, and I said, I figured the good thing I can do is I can pay him mm -hmm. TV money 
um, now so I can, you know, get close to him and then ask him to do a favor and ask him to do a comic book at, mm-hmm. you know, out of my own pocket. Um, but he and I have become very close friends and um, I've been now working together for years. And so and creating this comic book has been a real joy and satisfaction uh, between us. And so, you know, it was, it was quarantine that hit Will and, you know, Joy and I completed the first five issues and I'd always kind of thought in my mind, oh, I'll complete all eight in this story and then try and do something with it, uh, which is a little nuts, but I was just, I was paying for it out of my pocket and spending mm-hmm. my own time on it. And then quarantine hit and I said, you know what? This should be, I now have the time because TV's on hold. I, I can't shoot um, where I can really dedicate myself to this campaign, getting the word out and, um, you know, finishing the last issues. And so uh, it's been an exciting. So this has been my, you know, my, this quarantine gave me the impetus, you know, to cross this line. And I'm so grateful. Um, it's been fabulous to see people read the eighth, to talk to journalists, podcasters like yourself and see people impacted by it and to see an audience growing, you know, as we're just about to cross 10,000 um, uh, for a, product, a property that's unknown, right? That we there's just created and, and beginning promotions and um so it's so that that's what brings me to to you will uh, that's the the ride to before uh, okay. I spoke. all right well it sounds like you've been on an interesting ride uh and adam one thing i just want to ask you now you mentioned you kind of quickly mentioned getting into television and then going from there to producing uh, producing geek and sundry it was a geek and sundry yeah, so Geek and Sundry was the network of Keisha Day started it, and then Legendary Pictures bought it. And I've been pr- pretty, I've been directing uh, projects for them since since their inception, okay. since day one. Um, so, talk to me about this journey from being a normal a normal kid, so to speak, that loves comics, and then fell in love with not only Jim Lee but Alan Moore. And by the way, my favorite Alan Moore writing. I really didn't get exposed to the Swamp Thing stuff until later, but it was Watchmen for me. That really made me appreciate the, yeah, the, sure. the, the the writing part of it because that part of the story, you know, it, it changed how I viewed even the art. Because I'm not as big of a fan as Dave Gibbons' yeah. artwork, but the writing carried a lot of it for me. But uh, how did you go from that to getting involved in TV? Well, so the way it worked out for me is I always knew I wanted to be in television since I was probably about 14. I'd made that plan to be in, involved in film. And, um, and so, um, so around when I was uh, 21 years old, I, um, I guess pre- precursor to that, I was an actor in high school and I was on a couple of TV shows and I was writing scripts all through my teenage years. And when I was 21, I started producing and directing crappy local commercials. And I even got a chance to direct a, lo- a movie there. Um, I was living in Utah mm-hmm. at the time. And and then when I was 23, I moved to Los Angeles and I had a, a dinner with uh, two guys, Chris Wyatt and Sean Covell, and they were producing a movie called- Oh Nicole my gosh, that's one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. <laughs> one of yeah. the best, right? And they said, hey, Adam, we're doing three more movies um, for, for pennies, but we'd love to have you come work on these. And so I did three movies with those guys um, as a first AD. And then I did 20 independent movies. And, uh, but that dinner, um, you know, because I, I, before I came to Los Angeles, I had directed and produced and delivered a lot of uh, local content and 
and had been through the ringer quite a bit before going. And, and these are small indie movies. And I just threw myself in, you know, lots and lots of years at a hundred hours mm-hmm. a week, um, making these things happen. And, um, but that dinner with uh, Sean Covell and uh, Chris Wyatt uh, changed my life. Um, we're still friends to this day. In fact, the, you know, Chris is now the showrunner on Spider-Man uh, for the, oh, the animated wow. series. And, um, <clears throat> and so and we're still good friends to this day. And so that was kind of, that, you know, started it all for me. And I, I got into the independent movie route and then I was producing music videos and commercials. And then I, I, I wrote a film when I was 28 um, that got retitled by Lionsgate called to a game okay. of assassins. And we shot, we shot it in China. Um, and it was my first project that I was the full writer on. They bought the screenplay. We made it in China. I also gained a love of the East and Wai Zhongguo. Oh my and, um, I, and I ended up, you know, learning Mandarin and having a, a good relationship with the Far East. Um, but that was, you know, it was, it was that was my first movie that I'd written that was made. And, um, you know, I, having pitched and pitched and pitched and written and written and written. And then, um, I wrote another movie for Universal called Game Therapy, and um, and and at this time I was also getting uh, Geek and Sundry was starting up, and I started producing and directing there, and then at, as that was starting to go, I I knew a, uh, I met a guy named Brian Graydon who used to be the president of MTV, and a guy named Joey Graceffa who was a YouTuber wanted to do um, a murder mystery show, and he gotten a, and he needed a showrunner and a writer and a director and i said well listen i've got this crazy idea it's called escape tonight and it's going to be this half scripted half unscripted make-believe world where people live the tv show and it'll be dark and sexy and it'll be all this fantasy and youtube said great um youtube originals said great i think it won't work but we will pay for it because we're youtube and we are happy oh, to fail and that's not a joke that's not a joke uh, and then we became their longest running most awarded tv show um so um so that was that's kind of like you know in the quickest nutshell um and it, it it's been you know it's been magical you know i love working in television it is um and i love you know I, I love the process of of conceiving something and bringing it to life and then having fans love it that's maybe the most magical part of it all um when you i remember when i was doing tabletop and I was in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin at a Starbucks and I had my tabletop t-shirt on the guy, the barista said, Hey, I love that show. And I, I, I remember just being stunned here in this moment that this person who I'd never met had a connection to, mm-hmm. to my work uh, um, and that we shared something. And, um, you know, with Escape the Night, you know, there's been you know, hundreds of millions of views mm-hmm. on that show and there's, a, and to see fans at the premieres, the, you know the, 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 their plan is this is their whole summer plan is watching this and um, and just to see that wow you know that I made something that another person connects with and that's maybe more meaningful than any sort of other accolade as a as a fan who chose to give you right free time right and so you said Escape Tonight is on YouTube because I want to go check this out yeah yeah go check it out so it's our YouTube okay. originals so that used to be you had to pay twelve ninety nine a month it was their um, SVOD platform uh-huh. like a Hulu, um, but they've si- they've since changed that. Now it's all okay. ad supported, like regular TV, and so all f- all the f- current four seasons are there now. Okay. You can watch them, um, 
And I definitely yeah. want to check that out. Now, you mentioned Geek and Sundry, so I've got to ask the question. Now, I was at a convention in Louisville last year and got a chance to meet Felicity Day and ask a question on a panel she was on. She was just talking about different things related to um, related to uh, stuff with her and different acting roles and things like that. I got to ask her a question about Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. She was in that. So sure. do you have any fun, interesting Felicity Day or perhaps – is any of the other cast of that show stories that you'd like to share? Well, sure. Felicia Day and I are still close uh, to this day. Um, I've made a lot of te television for her and her and I are good friends. And we have a, another TV show we have in development right now together. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, the thing I love about Felicia so much um is is that she is this unusual multi-hyphenate of abilities of you know a mathematician a violinist an actress a comedian and a writer and and there's not too many right. folks like that and um and so and so it's been um as and so i think we had a really great working relationship over these years because of that and um so i think i mean i remember um one of our first moments a funny anecdote of season one of tabletop um she was the guest uh, one of the guests and i and i i plotted out for the for that first season that we were going to do all these interviews that that were a little bit more personal about people's connection to gaming and what it means for them and we were going to kind of tie that into the episodes more and i remember interviewing we interviewed felicia and then afterwards uh, she was like, Adam, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think this is the right direction. And then we got into the edit and um, um, they ended up not being useful. And and I remember it was a nice moment when I could see that she has really good instincts yeah. about what will work. And, you know, what was better was a cleaner show that was more focused on the gaming and the comedy. And um, uh, anyway, so there's a little anecdote with Felicia. Okay. That's really cool. That's really that's really interesting. I want to take a break for a minute, and I want to come back and let you talk about the eighth because this is like I said, this is my first experience with you and how I got to like I thought it was really interesting. It was just like yeah, I had questions, so I'm gonna share those questions, but then sure. I'm gonna go ahead and let you talk about it uh, when we come back. So after these messages, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. We've got Adam Lawson on. Adam Lawson has just shared with us some information about not only different stuff he's done in television and things he's produced and things like that, but now he's going to share with us a bit about The Eighth, which is a comic that I saw on Indiegogo, and I'm interested in kind of sharing this product because I feel like it's a really good concept. It's different. Uh, it's unique. I love the artwork for it. And so I just want him to kind of share a little bit about that. I know I asked him questions like, I believe on Indiegogo, he's got the book available as a hardcover. It's like a big, thick thing, too. It's not like your normal standard hardcover at all. It's got a lot of stuff going on there. So, I, of course, I think my first question to him was like, you know, are you going to do a soft cover? Because, you know, at some point I'm going to move. And I realized I got way too many trades. <laughs> and I was just like, is there a soft cover version? Because soft cover is a little bit lighter on the briefcases and such, the shipping. And he was like, well, I don't know. Uh, I may do something like that later, but that's right now I'm kind of going the hardcover route. So I'm like, okay, so that, I mean, I'm going to be buying the hardcover at some point. 
So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, because I really love this project because I really want to support it. And so anyway, I want, I want him to just have a chance to talk about it and let you guys know what the eighth is about. So that way we can kind of get some groundwork laid out. So if you're interested in supporting it, then you can go to Indiegogo and check it out yourself. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I know. As far as choosing to do it in hardcover, so you know it's a it's a you know it's a two hundred page story. It's eight comic issues, and the first one is thirty three pages long. You know, if you break it up, and so it's it's quite a big introduction to the world. And and I always felt like you know for myself, the soft covers are lighter and maybe easier to stuff into things. But they're seldom the things over time that I would keep in Fair my enough. collection. Right? It was always the Right, it was always the beautiful. Um, uh, it was always the beautiful hardcover editions. It was always the special edition, you know, and the lock and key I have in the master edition. And I just love that so much. I love to read it that way and to see it on the shelf that way. So I thought, that's the fun thing about Indiegogo is you can release a book in the yeah. way you dream of it being. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> so that's so that's why it is. And I think that I'm I'm hoping down the line after it's released and it's out to fans you know, the, to, to the backers that they'll become a publisher that will come on board and then will, there'll be a soft cover version and, and uh -huh. all that will happen. Um, but I think for now, what's cool is the initial people who took the ride will get an exclusive experience that yeah. people later won't. Um, um, but the, the eight at the core of it, the, the eighth is uh, the epic and painful mm -hmm. story of David Wells and Emma Adachi, two teenagers who find a piece of ancient living armor. And then like all of us at that age, they don't know how to control its power. And they end up getting oh murder. And before they and before they know it, they find themselves on a journey that will either change the world or destroy the world and probably more likely destroy it. Uh, the armor is, is is just actually just a piece of the armor and it's ancient Sumerian armor that belongs to the eighth sage. Now, historically, there are seven sages. They imagine they are the angels of Sumerian myth that came and imparted to humans different intellects and uh, information. But the eighth sage is my own creation. And the idea of that is the eighth sage was the destroying angel. It was the angel that it was the sage that would keep the others in check. It was the one that would refine the system. And so its purpose is uh -huh. darker. And... And so, but he only finds one piece of this armor, of this sage armor. And what's unique about it is David is a math genius. He solved the millennium problem, which are problems that the, the smartest minds on earth currently can't solve. And yet nothing changed for his life, right? His brother was bullied and ended up committing suicide. His mother is having a substance abuse problem as a result of it. And he, his life is still completely out of his control despite the fact that he can solve equations uh -huh. as can. But it so happens his equations that he's working on, what they can do and what is they can shape the armor itself. Because the armor is a math driven is a math driven device and it's made up of particles that are reassembled into different shapes and have different functions based on the equations that he runs oh. in his mind. So so he talks to the armor. So you'll see in like some of the thought boxes when he's commanding the armor to do something, 
you'll see a thermodynamic equation because that's how that's what he has to run in his mind to command the armor to do things. Um, but he gets this armor and he has this power, right? And then he realizes, um, I can now fix the world. I can I can make the world do something because I have this power that no one else does at my school and and, and my community and these bullies and these meth dealers. I'm just going to take them out. But he's also full of rage. He's also full of rage and complex things. And he tries to build these moral rules for him and his two friends, Emma and Atticus, to follow. Um, but because he doesn't know the power of it, he then ends up, instead of just beating up these kids, he, he mangles them so badly they'll never walk again. He shatters oh, their spines. Um, which I always feel like is the great lie of Spider-Man, right? Is that he can pick up a tank and yet when he punches um, a thug in the street, a uh, bank robber, with all of his might, it just knocks yeah. him out. When really, <laughs> that's the case is he would, he would be, you know, he would be, it would be like he was, being, it was like he would have been hit by a truck, right? Mm-hmm. He would be destroyed. And so I thought, let's, let's remove that lie and let's see what happens when real consequences happen. Right. Right. And that's what really started me to think about this was, Let's just have real consequences. And also, what's the real consequence of violence? More violence. And then overwhelming violence. And then Emma, who has suffered the most and unknown to David, you know, she's like, listen, I want to get revenge on someone. And that was against the rules. Revenge, you know, this is just to fix things. But she takes it too far. And the meth dealers get onto it. They come after them. People get killed. And then he ends up leaving, he and Emma end up leaving the town in ruins. And he was wrong. It turns out you cannot control the world. That's the catch. And to do so, and when you try and force the world to do something, you'll end up ultimately destroying yourself yeah. and those you care about. And so the, and that's kind of our issue one, right? This, this genesis of his idea of controlling or not controlling the world and also some harrowing events that really shape who Emma is and, and, uh, and also Atticus. And so um, Emma kind of takes, you know, the, the, you know, there's seven more issues after that where they're trying to get the rest of the pieces, the armor, figure out their destiny. And Emma takes a darker path than him. She believes the world's not worth saving and they should just burn it, uh, which is sort of the <clears throat> part of the destiny of the eighth, right? And so, but David still believes and that is part of their struggle because there's also romantic feelings between each other but they have different ideologies right so this is i think the the core of it and then also atticus is the third player who is the more sensible he's this Ghanaian kid who has a religious family who has some sense right um and it's like guys this 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 isn't there isn't a right what we're doing here this we can't do enough violence to make right once again um and then he ends up on his own journey mm-hmm. himself um coming coming after his friends later so i think it's the you know these three characters that are have these traumatic events and them trying to s- s- fix them as they also travel the world and deal with these ancient sumerian myths um Okay. It's our story, and um, um, and I, I and I think it's also you know it's it's gut wrenching, it's sexy, it has lots of twists, it's fantastical, um, 
and it's um, and um, and I think it's something that that leaves a, a distinct impression. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I really like. It's interesting that you mentioned the kind of the revenge thought. Uh, I was just watching part of the sixth season of the Flash series. And there's a moment where Barry is talking to Killer, Killer, Killer Frost, and she pushes a guy out of the window. And Barry basically looks at her and says, that's not the way we do things. You know, and she's like, well, what? You just want him to walk around and hurt, kill or hurt more people? I'm trying to stop her from killing anybody else. He's like, well, we don't do it that way. There's a way we do this, and this is not it. And later on, there's a point where he hears somebody make the comment, and I think it's his, his like, adopted father. He says, you know, uh, we put on these badges, your emblem, our, my badge, they drive us to be the best examples we can be. And so whenever there's pain involved, we have to fight through the pain in order to, to for, the better, for the good of the other people around us. And so it's kind of that idea that and then right. Barry takes that and kind of tries to apply it to Killer Cross, and he's like, you know, it, I'm not worried about you being angry. I'm worried about why you're angry. Because the why you're angry could be stuff that could end up influencing you to later and causing harm. Because this is after the point where he's already revealed to them that the crisis is coming, and he was not, he's probably, at, at this point, he's not going to survive. And so he's trying to build up this team flash to go on beyond him. And so, of course, I haven't seen much beyond that point, you know, but then again, I know that they didn't sign a seventh season of Flash with no Flash. So, you know. Right. <laughs> like, they didn't end the Flash this year. They ended Arrow, but they didn't end the Flash. So, I'm sure there's there's something. Right. I, I have a feeling as to why things are different, but I'm not going to go into that because we're not talking about the Flash right now. We're talking about the Ace. So, sure. Yeah, no, I think I agree. This is, I think, part of the themes that I think we – that are a factor in, um, in, in trying to save the day. Cause what does it mean to really, you know, mm-hmm. save the day? Um, right. How, how do you actually do it? And so, um, that, that, that I think comes into play in this story as well, but in a, maybe a different fashion because these characters at the core of what he wants is he wants to try and fix the past that he can't, right. He wants to save a right. brother who's already dead. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's the tale. And what's cool about it, Will, is that, you know, from an Indiegogo standpoint, is that Joe, my artist, and I finished the first five issues. And so um, already before we started the campaign. And so as soon as the campaign closes, every backer every month is going to get a new issue. You'll get issue one, issue two, just like you were collecting it because they're far enough ahead that digitally, we could just start giving you the story. And by the time you've gotten the issues digitally, we've already had, we've completed the last issues and done the print order. And so you can have the hard copy as well. Now, if you don't like digital, that's no big deal. And you can just wait for the, uh, wait for the hardcover edition. But it's a cool way to be able to connect the story right away and take advantage of all the work mm-hmm. that's been done. Um, and to know that we clearly have an, an ending and we have a clear story that we're okay. taking. So I've got another question for you now. You know, uh, I heard it said that with most businesses, with most stories, you always write the story with the end in mind. Do you feel like you have completed this story or do you feel like there's more that you're going to be able to delve into at a later time? 
I definitely there'll be more to delve into. I think that what these eight issues are is a complete story that doesn't leave gotcha. you with the cliffhanger. It is complete. It is complete. It will be the whole ride. You'll have taken it and be able to enjoy it, and it's and it's finished. Now, could there be things that we could explore more of and take, you know, side stories? Yes, at a later time, and I would love to do explore that. But I don't think anybody backing this has to worry that they're going to get something that's like issues one through two, and then maybe if I do another campaign, they'll address <laughs> right. the story. No, you know, right? That's always to me. That's always a little sketchy, and I'm like, huh, that's it. Whereas, like, you're going to get a full, complete story and ride, and and hopefully there gets to be another one. But if there never does, this ride was great and it's complete. Yeah, I've not quite gotten to the point of wanting to do an Indiegogo yet. But at some point, when I start doing Indiegogos, I'm going to do one shots that are just different stories, different characters. Sure. And then kind of see how that builds from there. Because I've got so many ideas in my head. I illustrate and write children's books. And so there are a lot of interesting ideas oh, cool. in my head that I, I've got to get out. But at the same time, it's like, I don't feel like I have like a 90-page story to do for any of them. So there's some sure. that I feel like could go on for a bit. There are others that don't. So you always, always kind of, I'm curious about what people, especially do Indiegogo, you know, they, and they do stuff like that or Kickstarter or whichever process they go through for crowdfunding these books. And so you were talking a little bit about your artist. Uh, tell me a little bit more about him. Um, so he lives in the Netherlands. Um, awesome guy. Um, he has been doing art for ages and he's a great creative partner. I mean, I give him fairly detailed script with detailed panel descriptions and how the layouts, but he really lends so much. He helps enhance things. He has good insight on characters and in lots of ways kind of is my like um, sounding board. You know, like I was him a script and, always, and sometimes I'll have a few notes about this could be better or what if we did this or if I changed this. And so he's, he's a really amazing partner. And I love his art because his art has spent a long time kind of working on this in the beginning it has this slightly cartoonish element to it um but by no means a cartoon it's still right. like an american comic but there's a slightly cartoonish element but then the, the but then the coloring has this sort of grit and paint strokes in it and grime and so that way you get like this unusual feeling of both sort of the, the violence and then the vulnerability because you're going to be dealing with a story that has a lot of yeah. heavy things in it and it's a nice way to make it digestible. Okay. I would call that from an artistic standpoint, I would call that beautiful, uh, beautiful destruction. Right. You know, yep. you, yeah, you think really about, for example, yeah. like, uh, uh, you, you mentioned Alan Moore, you think of, uh, in Watchmen, you think of Dr. Manhattan, you think of all this power that he has. And, you know, at one point he goes to the moon and constructs this world for himself. It's most beautiful and destructive because you understand what's going to happen with him as time goes on as you read the story. You see that even though he's got this beautiful place set up, that his mind is not beautiful. Uh, he's kind of he the more he builds, the more he disconnects from humanity, and so the less that he cares about the ills of humanity and so forth up to a point. And so correct, yeah. Yeah, no, so, I agree. you know, you definitely did it. And, and like I said, you know, the, the art was the hook uh, and the line yeah. was the story. And I'm definitely going to be getting in on this on my end and supporting this. And as a matter of fact, I'll make sure to message you once I put in my pledge, just so you see that I've done it. Uh, 
Will, you're too kind. Thank you. Thank you for backing it. I appreciate it. I'm so grateful for all of the backers. It's really kind of an amazing thing to think that like you created something. This is their first exposure to it and they're willing to take a risk with me. And that's really humbling. And I'm super appreciative and I hope they love it as okay. much as I So I've got another question for you as we kind of wrap up now. You're you're mentioning this this uh this journey that you're on, this ride. And one of the parts of the ride is Indiegogo itself. So how did you come to the decision to say, I want to go through this method through, say, Indiegogo as opposed to, say, Kickstarter or maybe going through Amazon directly for a direct self-publishing model or something like that? What what made you think Indiegogo was the best route? Well, um, so two things. Uh, one is uh, Tabletop Season 3. It's the first two seasons are funded by Google, and the third season – Mm-hmm. We crowdfunded it, um, and we used Indiegogo for that. And um, we'd kind of gone through the rounds of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and, and there's a little bit better deal there on Indiegogo. And so that's the route we took on Tabletop. And so I had a past experience working with them, and they were really great. And um, and then also I, uh, I'm i a crowdfunding kind of guy, and I, think I, I love to buy backpacks. And I, I, as crazy as that is, I love to buy them on – and for some reason uh, – more than half of them kind of end up on Indiegogo. So I think I was just familiar with the turf. Um, And, and then I've seen a lot of, um, and then now getting into it, I see that, wow, there's a really, uh, a bigger, a big comic book community on Indiegogo. And, and, and that's really, and and it's like, whoa, this is actually, I felt like not only was it the place I was the most comfortable with, um, it was also seemed like it had a, a bigger group of people who would be on their own accord searching for comics. And so, you know, that's why I ended up. Yeah, I think the first uh, project that I sponsored through Indiegogo was a book called Common Writer. Uh, Tim Lim is the artist for that. And I've loved some of his other stuff, like My Hero, Magadamia 1 and 2. And then uh, he did that. And then yeah. I was just like, okay. So they said that it's weird because, like, I think the day after they closed it, they did send the digital copies to us. And then, like, a week or two later, I got the physical copy in my hands. And I was just like, this is really cool. Like I don't feel like I I don't feel like it's a right. waste of my money. I don't feel like it was very complicated. Uh, whereas sometimes with other crowdfunding platforms, sometimes it gets real complicated because it's like, okay, you're gonna pay for this, but then you have to go through this other thing once you get done funding it. In order to finish funding it, even though you funded it, we took your money. You know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Right, and it's just. And Indiegogo is really clean and simple, I think, for anybody okay. to jump in on. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're listening because if you're interested in doing something as related to comic book or book or something like that and want to crowdfund it, we've got an endorsement here for Indiegogo, at least two, because as far as I'm concerned, you're using it and I've supported at least one project about to support a second. So <laughs> so definitely going to um, – you know, definitely going to, you know, say that if you're interested in producing something of high quality, I would say, you know, of course, you got to have printers and all that different stuff, but of course, you got to plan for that. And speaking of planning, uh, one of the, what are some things that you got to plan for that, that people may not think about if they're going to go to Indiegogo to put out a comic book or put out a series of trade paperback or something like that? Yeah, so I mean, well, first of all, there is planning your budget initially right like how many pages is this going to be because it usually you book artists and people and colorists etc all on uh, page count and so 
you know, is my story 80 pages? Is it 120? Is it 200? And saying, okay, this is, this is the page. This is the price per page. Here's the total money it's going to cost to make it. Then you have to consider how much you're going to print. And what you don't quite realize is that if you print less than 250 copies of something, it, it's yeah. super expensive. Um, and so you're really going to be kind of factoring either at the price point of either 250 or 500 issues or kind of like your beginning mm-hmm. price points. And, and so that's where you're going to get in. And so to think about like, okay, I need to raise this much money based on like, I feel like I'm going to need to print at least 200 right. copies of this. What's that going to cost to print 200? So no matter what happens, I need to raise at least that much. And then I can be, you know, I can pay the artist myself or whoever, however, if you're the artist, pay a writer, mm-hmm. however you're doing it, pay your creative team out of your own pocket if you had to, but you'll at least have to set your fixed goal at what printing right. cost is going to be. So that you know you can actually exactly. do it for the book. Um, and so, and I also so think sort of running that gamut of printing costs and page count and charting that out in a way that's realistic, I think is something that's easy to miscalculate. You know, we wanted to do something special. So it took a lot of different vendors we went through. Plus we also have the t-shirt. Um, and, and so we had some different routes that we took to try and find the right printers and to get the quality as well. And so I think that that, that whole other side of it, and then I would say that then the other piece that sometimes isn't thought about is like, people don't know what your product is. And so you have to be incredibly engaging for one, but two, anything you can do to build a fan base before Mm -hmm. you launch is the best thing you can do. Whether you're using your socials to promote, you know, panels or pages, um, you know, whether you're jumping on streams or however you're getting it out, anything you can possibly do to build a following of your story before Mm -hmm. the campaign because because think about anything you buy in life, you seldom buy things at right. first glance. You know what I mean? There's a familiarity and the number one question in purchasing anything is, do I know this product? Um, so I think that's something to think on. And, and then also to figure out, you know, who are people beyond yourself who you could ask to help you promote. Um, and if you feel like you don't know anybody beyond yourself and you feel like you, you know, you don't, I don't have a means of building the audience in advance and you don't know how to pay for anything. This probably is mm-hmm. a pathway for you. Um, but, um, and certainly maybe first time around you might lose, might lose a little bit of your shirt on it, trying to get it delivered, but then at least you've built a fan base and you can hopefully go back. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I figured one of the things you think about too, in relationship to that is shipping as well. You know, you talked about kind of shipping it out. Uh you know, you have to look yeah. at that. You have to say, okay, well, how much is it going to be? You know, you're you're talking about 200-page hardcover trade paperback. That's not going to be a light thing. And you want to make sure it not only gets to people, but that it gets to people well. Because the worst thing to have happen is for somebody to ship you something and it not it be, you know, in good condition when you get it. No, no, no. That's a that's a total disaster. All that waiting and anticipation and following, and then having an epic fail on the arrival. Uh, that's uh, that would be a depressing. Thing. Yeah. All right. So 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 uh, are we going to get an art book by your uh, by your artist as an inclusion into this at some point? So what what will be there is definitely the uh, the the hardcover will have some additional art designs and some okay. early on stuff, 
Um, it's also there's going to be all sorts of cool, you know. There's also going to be all five, all eight of the covers, plus these cool uh, series of art. If you're following on Twitter, Instagram, you start to see them that have this unusual shaped. Uh, they have um, their white background with a geometric shape, and then a character yeah, like of that. And those will be the inside covers. If you've been seeing those, that those are going to be all part of the art. So there's a whole pile of fun, beautiful pieces of art that are going to be going in on top of this besides the amazing pages. Um, So that when you get this, it's a full meal of art and story and everything you want in a deluxe comic. Okay, so here's the part of the episode where you get to tell us where we can find it, tell us about the stretch goals, all that fun stuff. Go ahead. Yes. Um, So you can find it on Indiegogo, the 8th. First there's only three tiers. I wanted to keep it real simple for, for people. $25 gets you the digital issues. And once again, you get those starting as soon as the campaign closes. You start getting each one each month. And then tier two is $55. You get the digital. Plus, you get the deluxe hardcover edition. It's 200 pages. It's got a beautiful slipcover case. It's got UV spotting. It's beautiful. Um, and then at $100, you get the T-shirt, which is this unique cool impressionistic design you will not look like somebody who walked out of comic-con with an art print <laughs> t-shirt you will look you will look cool and geek at there the same go. time um and for the hundred dollars and then as far as stretch goals go when we are funded that's that will send the first stretch goal which is an art print that will be this uv embossed beautiful print um of david transforming in the armor and then we have some other stretch goals that involve you know embellishments of the book and then, um, and then some additional story pages. Um, those might be a little far off, but we would hope to get those. But if nothing else, just by crossing the line, we're going to get one stretch goal for everyone. And um, and so you should jump on in. The water's warm. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Failed Superheroes Club, or you can follow me on Twitter at Failed Superhero. And I'm doing daily updates on art and cool bits about the story and animation all surrounding the eighth. So you can get your feet wet before you dive in. Um, we got 23 days left. So come on in. The water is warm and, uh, and back. The, uh, all back right. The all right. All right. All right. Well, and listen, uh, thank you, Mr. Lawson for coming on and being willing to talk with me about uh, this particular book that you're working on. I'm glad I was able to talk with you about it. I'm definitely going to support it, and I hope that others that listen to this will support it as well. And I appreciate you coming on here and talking with me about the book and everything, because now I'm even more excited about it than I was just kind of messaging you back and forth online. So I'm glad I'm able to get the chance to right. talk about this and let you talk about it more. So I thank you for coming on, and ladies and gentlemen, Thank you for coming to another conversation episode of Conversations About Dot, Dot, Dot. And more importantly, above all else, guys, be blessed to be a blessing to somebody, guys. Take care.